So famous author J.R.R. Tolkien writes about a kingdom called Gondor. And already all the nerds are like, this is my favorite sermon. Like already we're super pumped. But Gondor for many years didn't have a king. But while waiting for the rightful heir to claim his throne, a series of what the books call stewards had been placed and in charge of the land. Now, it's fascinating about reading Lord of the Rings um, and, and basically seeing the responsibility of a steward. It reminded me that, that our culture and even possibly this church has lost the, the revolutionary beauty in what it means to bear this title. Now, don't get me wrong. We all understand, especially in the West Side, we all understand ownership and borrowing and leasing. And few of us understand mortgaging. God bless you. <laughs> Share the wealth. So few of us understand mortgaging, right? But stewardship has sadly just been resigned to money. It's just become money. And that is wrong. Tolkien skillfully writes how stewards of this kingless land possess the power of the king, but without the title. And these stewards in the books made decisions, and they, they, were, they were to pass good judgment. Their primary task the whole time, deciding what was best for the land in place of the king. But in all they did and all they were supposed to do, they were responsible for possessions and powers while also remembering they are not the king. This is a profile of a steward and a crucial identity to, for, for, for all who claim to follow Jesus. It is a crucial identity. And beyond that is a crucial understanding for our humanity. Genesis 1, the very first book in the Bible, calls this the cultural mandate. Or maybe you've heard, called, have, uh, heard it called uh, the creation mandate. But the Bible also tells us so that God made everything and then essentially just handed it over. He just handed it over. Or how did our verses explain it today? Look at verse 14 of chapter 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Same thing. God has declared you and I to be viceroys or, or stewards of his kingdom, of his property for the time being. Now, I absolutely love this quote from Richard Pratt. I hope you dig it. It's super chunky. Bear with me. He says, The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room, Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, over your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up in the morning and go to work. That's why we get up in the morning and go to work. We don't labor to simply survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. I don't know about you, but when I'm entrusted with somebody else's property or, or possessions, I feel a much uh, heavier weight of responsibility. Don't we? Like if I'm driving somebody else's kids in my car, I'm freaking out because with my own kids, we're listening to grindcore super loud. We're going super fast. They're smoking with the windows rolled up. With my own kids, it's who cares? But if I'm driving somebody else's kids in the car, I'm freaking Mr. Rogers, right? 
So Tolkien and God are wanting us to seize this identity. They're wanting us to seize this responsibility as part of our makeup. It's part of our makeup. It is our creation responsibility. It is our human, human, human imperative. So then, again, just to make the point that any resorting to just theological lifestyle of stewardship, just being about money, is to undercut a beautiful part of our very being. Hence, why we would take the time during a small, very short, but very important four-week series we're calling Profile of a Disciple. Okay, It's not the most sexy of sermon series, but, but living out from these profiles as followers, as family, as we saw last week, and as next week as disciple makers, and today as stewards, is continuing the steps in our attempt to cultivate a maturing and responsible culture here at this church. So stewardship, and write this down, is undeniably interwoven into our discipleship and faith. And if that it's not our goal. What are we doing here? Let's go to brunch and burn this place down. We don't own it. Don't burn it down. But Ryan, what are we doing here if this isn't part of the goal? So then, what about you? I've rambled on. What about you? How are you actualizing this identity of a steward in your life? And since that's an extremely broad question, how about just here within this family, within this church family? How have you, how are you responsibly managing your identity as a steward? Now, if you're unsure, then for further self-study, allow this question that I'm about to ask right now be a crowbar of sorts. Here it is. If everyone in this church had your same exact level of stewardship, what would this church be like? I heard a whistle. That person gets it. Right? What would this church be like? That's not a condemning question. Unless our engagement, care, support, love, time, talent, and treasure are less than honorable. Truly consider this. If everyone here had your exact level of stewardship, would we be thriving or barely surviving? Family, the Spirit of God has a word and a direction for us today which transcends a shallow, shallow stewardship questions of, what can I do for God? And in my opinion, it wants us to come and see the most, one of the most beautiful aspects of stewardship where we can start asking the question, what does God want to do in us, both individually and communally? But in order to get this into our gut, we have to listen to a story, Matthew 25. Some of it's already been read. Now, if you're not familiar with Jesus, and this is your first time here, or you're a visitor, know this. This dude loves to tell stories. Jesus loves it. He loves starting a campfire and putting like a flashlight under his face. Jesus loves to tell stories. They are one of his most dynamic forms of truth-telling, okay? And we, I say especially compared to the rest of the country, we get it. We are a story propagating city. Some of you get paid a lot of money to write stories about pigs and war, whatever stories you're writing about. I don't know. And some of you want to be paid a lot of money to write stories about pigs and war. Now, even think about it. The entire Bible as a whole is a singular story. God knowing that more than creeds or rules or, or spreadsheets, that it's stories that move us. It's stories. 
So when we approach the parables or the stories of Jesus like we're doing today, there are a couple things that I do have to give a preface. I know this is a long intro before we get in the Bible, ask for forgiveness, but we have to give this small introduction. We have to know a couple of things in the same way we have to know what kind of stories we're listening to. Like, we all want to know if we're listening to fiction or nonfiction, or if somebody's about to tell you a story about their dream, which has to be the worst form of storytelling ever. <laughs> Stop telling people your dreams. Unless I'm in your dream, I don't want to hear about it. About cats buying groceries or whatever you're dreaming about. Stop telling people your dreams. So to understand parables is to know that they, for the most part, signify inspired comparisons. They signify inspired comparisons. So if you think about some of the parables that maybe some of you know, we think about two sons or types of oil lamps or types of soil. And today talents. And there were, and these were, excuse me, more, more spiritual ideas explained in like natural ways. So with interpreting this like we're going to do today, we must always be mindful that yes, there is a hidden meaning, meaningful and a meaning of a spiritual revelation, but not everything is a spiritual revelation. So sometimes when we're reading the stories, it's just artistic expression. So don't get ahead of herself, because today's going to be a little bit gnarly with that. And because today, I'll just confess, today's a beautiful story that we're going to go over, but it's also probably one of the most disturbing parables there is in the New Testament. You will be disturbed. It is going to bother us. So you've been warned. But to get to that disturbing aspect, we first have to realize that a wealthy man goes on a trip of an undetermined amount of time, but before he leaves, he entrusts his wealth and his power and his possessions to his servants, like Lord of the Rings. To one, he gives five talents, to another two, and to one, a single talent. Okay? Now, everybody wondering what talents are, he's not going around going, now you can sing like Adele, and now you have the gift of puppetry. Like, he's not passing out talents like that. <laughs> a talent, then, was the greatest unit of accounting in Greek money. It's about 10,000 denarii. Now, get this. A single denarii was a day's wages. Everybody with me? Basically, he handed over a whole lifetime of wages to these stewards. Okay? So if this is an allegory for the Christian life, then Christians have been given quite a bit by grace. Now, talents have varying interpretations despite the literal meaning being money. French theologian John Calvin reminds us that the use of our talents is not restricted to the church or to pious duties. It encompasses the whole of creation. So when I say the word talent today or you read it here, we need to read it as our time, as our limitations, as our attitudes, as our spiritual gifts, our plans, our skills, our work, our puppetry, and our service. Okay, so I'm going to ask for your permission as we're just about to get into this. I want to do something a little unorthodox for how we normally do this, since we want to bring uh, a reformation of sorts to the idea of stewardship, to its modern, lame, weak understanding of it. And because this text, this story is boiling over with insight and inspiration to what it means to be a responsible steward, I want to highlight five 
I want to highlight five tenets of this reformation of sorts. I'll have you out of here by 3 p.m., I promise. But I want to highlight five tenets, okay, for our discipleship direction. And don't worry, they're not going to spell anything. Last week I did an acronym. I got so much hate email. It was unbelievable. (laughs) So we're not going to do that. Colleen laughed. We're good. Verse 15 of chapter 25. We're going to get into it if you have your Bible. That was a very long intro, but we had to go over it. Sorry about that stupid garage door. Verse 15. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. And pay close attention to this. To each, according to his ability. Tenant number one of stewardship for our Reformation purposes is stewardship is unequal. It is unequal. A lot of us read the story and we are tempted to feel bad for the guy who got one talent. Oh, poor little guy. We're tempted to feel bad for him. But in reality, he received as much as a million dollars. It's like some of us feeling bad for Dane Cook. He's fine. We don't need to worry about Dane Cook. He's fine. Again, this is one of the hardest lessons we can possibly learn with stewardship. It's not equal. It is not equal. Salvation? Yes, of course. Stewardship? No. No. Not all of us have received the same amount to steward. These stewards had zero say in what they got because all of them would have been like 25, 40. They had no say. Like us, they were created with differing mental and verbal capacities, uh, differing uh, skills and bandwidth and looks. I am by far the most handsome person here, and I need to steward that. (laughs) You understand? (laughs) But then, on top of that, we've all been exposed to differing opportunities and privileges and educations and churches, right? All of this diversity is about stepping into this body, the local church, this family, and being the part you are. You are supposed to be the part you are. It's very important. Because sadly, what slithers into our hearts isn't what we've received, it's what they've received. It's what they've received. I want, I want that opportunity, or, or, or I want that gig, or I want that person. This, this is a plague, collective church, when that happens. This brings us right back to Genesis, where the very first parents were going or given everything they could ever want. They're walking around completely naked, In paradise, burritos are growing off of trees, but the devil comes into them and says, you should have more. You should have more. This paradise and the naked people, you should have more. (laughs) Sorry. Our, Our church will only begin to transform once we stop asking, once we stop asking why them. We have to stop. And once we start asking, will I trust God for what he has given me to do? Any form of comparison is a direct, direct enemy of stewardship. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And look at this, as good stewards of God's varied grace. This changes the mindset of comparison to companionship. As it takes us into a family realm of what's considered the beautiful burden. Anybody heard that before, the beautiful burden? 
Old school theologian Jonathan Edwards once put it, and I've shared this quote many times, but it's very powerful. When people say, when the church says, I can't afford to give, what they're really saying is, I can't afford to give without burdening myself. Is this anyone here? The Bible says bear one another's burdens, and the only way to do that is to burden our own stewardship. Verse 19 of chapter 25. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Another tenet of a reformed view of stewardship is accountability. God will weigh what we do. We are not allowed to rule over the cultural mandate, our wallets, our wills, our bodies, as we see fit. This is the most unpopular message in all of Los Angeles. Owners have rights. Stewards have responsibilities. To exercise dominion under the watchful eye of the master managing his property in accord with the principles that have been established by the owner. Let's see how these servants did that in verse 20. Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five more talents. Even though these are ancient words, we can still sense like this excitement and eagerness, right? Master, here, 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 here. Verse 22. Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two more talents. These servants are crushing it. They're crushing it. To use more financial language, these servants have made a 100% return on their investment. They are successful. They are successful. Which leads me to ask our church, our family, how are we defining or measuring our success with our stewardship? They have it easy. They got a complete return on it. But how are we doing it with our gifts, our time, so on and so forth? Well, verse 23 tells us, his master said to them, met said to him, Well done, good and flourishing servant. Wait a minute. Casey, you tricked us. Well done, wealthy and good investor servant. No, that's not right, Casey. Well done, good, hardworking servant. No. Well done, good and faithful. Good and faithful. This is the next tenant for our stewardship reformation. God's economy regarding success is not measured by gain. It is measured by the degree of our faithfulness. I just want to read that verse in its fullest. Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, you have been faithful over a little. They got millions of dollars. And God's like, it's nothing. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Allow these words, collective church, to wash over you. I don't know about you, but for me, this inspires an incredible hope that this God we talk about so much doesn't reward perfection or profit, but a loyal, loyal effort. Now, this is a very provocative thought, church family. Because it forces Christians here to analyze their stewardship in light of who they are versus the more common disposition of what's the lowest common denominator that I have to hit. 
Meaning, for some here, when it comes to any form of stewardships, don't we lean more towards what is the least I can do while still fulfilling my duties as a follower of Christ or as a family member or as a church member without unnecessarily disrupting my own life? What is this else I can get, get away with? 10%? Fine, nailed it. I, can, I only have to serve twice a month at Collective? That's awesome. Sign me up. This family is faithfulness to an action but this is not faithfulness to an affection. Imagine if we ran our marriages or our parenting this way. Wife, what is the least I can do so that we're still married? The least I can do. We're laughing because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, right? Even with that, we need to learn how to steward our motives as well. Because God... The God of the Bible is not interested in percentages. This church is not interested in percentages. The Bible is not interested in percentages. Matthew 25 reveals that God is interested in solely in our trust. Stewardship is a barometer of the heart. How did Jesus say it? In another part of Matthew, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So with your permission, let's get extremely practical and pick on the top-tier idea of this, that being money. we got to pick on it because it's the easiest to operate on while it's the topic that we get the most questions about. Money. See, when it comes to purely stewarding our finances in regards to giving to the church, again, a hot-button issue, this is why we need to hit on it. So we want to invite in when it comes to money, a paradigm shift as well. I want us to remove some language and change some language. No more thinking I give to the church. Let's be done. No, we give through the church as a family on mission. May we not perpetuate that the church is a money-hungry location, business, whatever. And we're beyond grateful that the majority of this church gives so sacrificially, so generously, and on the regular. This church is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even this time last year, the church demonstrated stewardship so beautifully with a 25% increase in giving. Now, please don't hear me say, yay, more money. No, yay, more faithfulness, greater discipleship. We are reaching more people. But man, what an honor, what an absolute privilege it is for me, and I know for Pastor Lorenzo, and I know for Pastor Isaac, to be a, a, a pastor at a church which houses such strong stewards as yourself. You guys are unbelievable, and we're grateful. If you guys remember last year, we made great efforts to dismantle this idea of what's so popularly, popularly known as the tithe. We don't use that language from this stage, and we invite you to not use it as well. That's an Old Testament principle, which means 10th, 10%, and has done more damage to our stewardship presently than it has helped. Meaning it's taking a practice of generous worship and limit it to the lowest common denominator. We'd be uncomfortable to say, I give 9% because we know 10% is where we gotta be. It's not a New Testament principle. Now don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, 
Don't get me wrong. The tithe is a fine principle, but it is to be considered what Randy Alcorn calls, author Randy Alcorn, training wheels for disciples. So for the new followers of Jesus, it is extremely helpful. Extremely helpful. Okay? Actually, I don't know if I should get into this or not, but I'm just going to go there, and I'll get in trouble later, and it's totally fine. But to talk about the 10% or the 20%, it's kind of hilarious. I don't think that's the right word. I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. But what I mean is the idea of 10% today when the cultural norm for tipping in an L.A. restaurant is what? 20. If you gave less than 20% to a waiter or a waitress, I'd be like, you're a total jerk. Right? <laughs> we live in a day. We live in a day. We live in a city where people spend more on their cell phone bill than the mission of God. The church has become a place to financially tip the pastors rather than a place to invest in others. So success as faithfulness is to declare that God, you, your mission, your family will not be detoured even though my circumstances may be. Faithfulness as success is God, you, your mission, your family will not be disregarded in seasons of fasting or famines. Success is faithfulness to proportionally give to God out of what he's entrusted to us. And if this isn't in place, then we have verse 24. Read it with me. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, you can already tell the disposition has changed, the demeanor has changed, like a shadow has crawled across the pages of our Bible. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scouted the seed. Verse 25, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground, as you do. Like a dog with a bone, he dug a hole, and he took millions of dollars, and he threw it in the hole. Now, this was a common thing to do then if you wanted to save money. The ground was one of the safest places you could put money. Go back a few chapters, you see about a parable of a guy who finds a treasure in the field because people were putting their money out there. But, 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 with borrowed money, with borrowed money, if a person was entrusted with money and buried it, he would be free from liability if anything should happen to it. So then, did we catch what he just did? The servant didn't make the slightest intention to invest and made a conscious, deliberate, disobedient choice to remove his responsibility. Why? Verse 25 again. I was afraid. I was afraid. I'm most afraid of you. Allow me to say so reverently and so respectfully, what a load of crap. It's a load of crap. Has anyone seen the movie primal fear. I know Andrew has. <laughs> With, it has Richard Gere, Ed Norton. It's like from 96. Some of you weren't even born yet. Yeah. Lily was like two, loving it. <laughs> primal fear. It's a story about an attorney who defends a timid altar boy who was accused of murdering an archbishop who abused him. But in the end, as the boy is declared innocent, there is this moment 
It's the best part of the whole movie. There's this moment where this altar boy, he slips. He slips. And he reveals a darker side. And the attorney discovers his true guilt. That's verse 27. Read it with me. The master says, Ah, then you ought to have invested. If you were afraid of me, then you should have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have at least received some interest. Basically, if you're truly afraid of me, you wouldn't have buried it. You wouldn't have done this. See, one talent, like Ed Norton, is found out. And all of a sudden, just like in the movie, they're timid, fearful, Southern Belle-like accent disappears. And Ed Norton, once he's discovered that he is a murderous, vile, evil being, he starts to do this. And he looks at the attorney and he says, good for you. This is one talent. He's not who he says he is, who he's letting on to be. Look at verse 26 again. Because of that, verse 26 But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. This is where Christians and not get uncomfortable. We're starting to enter the the disturbing aspect of Jesus' story. Because the storyteller, who is the master in the story, isn't painting himself in the most brightest of colors. So we go from good and faithful to you wicked and slothful. Some of the harshest words in the Bible. In this case, the servant's fear and laziness was a symptom of his wickedness, not the other way around. The servant's wickedness was in falsely accusing the master of wickedness. That has to be clear. Now, don't get me wrong. Stewardship is freaky. Stewardship is risky. Thus, there's an aspect of fear to it. Thus, there's an aspect of trepidation to it. In fact, as you see behind me, it is one of the next tenets of this Reformation. So I get that there is a fear of risk, but that is not the only issue with one talent. One talent just does not give two poops. He doesn't care. He's an indolent, which is a far greater risk than the risk of investment. It's the risk, it's to risk the opportunity. That is a greater, greater risk is, is disobedience. And because the Christian life is a call to greater risk, we either live it or we either waste it. And this dude is letting this heavenly opportunity rot. So how about you? Are you saying or have you said, I need some kind of guarantee before I sign over all my rights? I need some kind of guarantee where my time, talent, treasure, tongue, temple, so on and so forth will be spent. Here's the thing. God rarely gives us one. Far too many and for far too long, professing Christians have lived a life where they said, I love the idea of being on a journey of faith as long as it doesn't require too much of me. Too many Christians for far too long have said, I love like this, let's go to the promised land as long as we don't have to leave anything behind. Too many professing Christians have said, we want space in our life for God as long as it doesn't change our schedules too much. We want self-knowledge 
We go to church to learn about ourselves. As long as it doesn't cut too close to this like ego bone. We want love as long as it's inconvenient, or excuse me, not inconvenient. So I ask you, what opportunities for untethered risk do you have right now? If it's I want responsibility as long as it pays off with titles, then the reason any of that ideas exist within the kingdom of God is because of a muddied vision of the king. One commentary puts it, the servant as a self-seeker separated his own interests from the Lord's and therefore reckoned his Lord to be a self-seeker also. Are we following this? Master, you're a thief. God, you're a thief, dude. God, you're harsh. God, you're unfair. How many of us possibly consider now possibly especially if you're here and you don't follow Jesus or you have considered in your life, that God is a hungry, money-hungry tyrant who has nothing better to do than to boss people around. This parable only proves it. Where's the grace? And truthfully, should we ask, does God expect too much from us? That's not an unreasonable question to wrestle through. Is it true? Does God expect too much from us? The servant projects his own character onto the master and he charges God with the very faults that decay within him. Aren't we all guilty of this? I love being a pastor, but the amount of counsel or conversations I've had with people where they're unbelievably pointing a finger at God saying he's an angry, horrible, disruptive, unpresent, remote, distant, not loving God, is truly a projection of what they are wrestling with in their own identities. I'm not saying that's true every time. But accusing and projecting upon others and God the very thing that is eating us alive. But again, to be fair, it's logical. And it's logical for anybody to consider this because why would one talent choose to give if, choose to give if he doesn't see how the king has given? He doesn't understand. That's true for us as well. Why serve others if I myself don't understand the value of eternity, holiness, salvation, and receiving or the goodness of God? And here's one of the greatest stewardship reformations there could ever be. Stewardship is first and foremost about receiving before it is ever about giving. To be stingy with any of our talents is a gospel repeal of the heart. Meaning Jesus did not merely tie the portion of his life, a tie the portion of his blood, tie the portion of his inheritance. He gave it freely in excess. It was poured out recklessly, beautifully, and completely. That's a king, I don't know about you, but that's a king I'm willing to risk for, a king who risked it all. You see, well done, good and faithful will not just happen. It will not just happen. None of us are good. But because of his goodness and his faithfulness, we can be changed. We give because he gave it all. We steward because we have been entrusted. We sacrifice because of what he has sacrificed, because he was sacrificed. And we bear the burdens of others because he bore the sins of the world. Our stewardship is the medium through which we can manifest our understanding of God's grace and goodness. When we are in this place spiritually, 
then naturally we'll become passionate about what matters most to him. But we have to be first there spiritually, which one talent was not. Again, in our investment language, we will then desire to start joining our interests to him. Salvation, or that being love, or that being generosity, or that being the family. The stakes are far too high to not aim for a more faithful responsibility. Now, as much as I wish we could end there, we have to read the most disturbing stuff of all. So if you will with me, read verse 28. We're close to wrapping it up. Bear with me. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Notice the master does not take the money. He is not interested in gain. He gives it away. Verse 29. For to everyone who has will, uh, has, uh, has more will be given, and we will give an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Greater responsibility is the reward for responsibility. And then here it is, here it is, verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Will you pray with me? <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> I wish. And this is where Pastor Lorenzo comes up and takes it from here. What's going on here? If I don't give more than 10%, God's going to break my teeth? Unsubscribe. Like, no thank you. Here it is. Here it is. When we read this parable, we may be tempted to think that the punishment of the wicked servant is the command of the master, right? Of a heartless master. And truthfully, most view hell as an punishment from an unloving God when it's the exact opposite. We're going to be spending a whole series on the afterlife post-Easter. So bear with me. But while it is true that the master orders this punishment to be carried out, In reality, the sentence is something that the servant brings upon himself. For the first time, he is allowing the steward or the servant to make a decision. There was a deliberate choice made. It was rejecting the offer. I don't want what you want me to watch over. Then, you are not my master. I am not your steward. And then there's a rejection of identity, which sets eternity's seal to the choice that was made for him. Truly what makes the difference between these two responses, between five talent and two talent and one talent, is the relationship. They get it. They understand that their master and who they is and the affection and not profit. Any reward or punishment will not be from, and this is just to help us understand, a couple haphazard decisions or divine decisions we make based on a few instances of what we did or didn't do with our talents. It will be a final and natural outcome of how we know and how we receive the king's love. Does that make sense? At the end of the Lord of the Rings, (laughs) might as well, where the king returns, I was so shocked. He was away for a long time, and this king comes back to a kingless land, like the master did in the story, and like Jesus will. And the good steward in the book, and he sees the king, and rather than grumbling about what he did or didn't get, 
And rather than fighting him about who had more, and rather than pushing him, his own agenda, when he sees this king finally, do you see everything I've done? Do you know what this good steward says? He goes, behold the king. He goes, behold the king. When Jesus returns, he will ask you or me if you have been a faithful steward. And he will examine the evidence because where much has been given, much rightly should be expected. I hope it is our absolute prayer and desire to hear the words, well done, well done, well done, well done, well done. May we crave to lead the chorus, behold the king, like the good steward, amen?